Part 1, Chapter 1, Section 18 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 1, History of the Birth and Childhood of Jesus. Chapter 1, Annunciation and Birth of John the Baptist. Section 18, Natural Explanation of the Narrative. In treating the narrative before us according to the rationalistic method, which requires the separation of the pure fact from the opinion of interested persons, the simplest alteration is this, to retain the two leading facts, the apparition and the dumbness, as actual external occurrences, but to account for them in a natural manner. This were possible with respect to the apparition by supposing that a man, mistaken by Zacharias for a divine messenger, really appeared to him, and addressed to him the words he believed he heard. But this explanation, viewed in connection with the attendant circumstances, being too improbable, it became necessary to go a step further, and to transform the event from an external to an internal one, to remove the occurrence out of the physical into the psychological world. To this view, the opinion of Bart, that a flash of lightning was perhaps mistaken by Zacharias for an angel, forms a transition, since he attributes the greater part of the scene to Zacharias's imagination. But that any man, in an ordinary state of mind, could have created so long and consecutive a dialogue out of a flash of lightning is incredible. A peculiar mental state must be supposed, whether it be a swoon, the effect of fright occasioned by the lightning, but of this there is no trace in the text no falling down as in acts chapter nine verse four or abandoning the notion of the lightning a dream which however could scarcely occur whilst burning incense in the temple hence it has been found necessary with paulus to call to mind that there are waking visions or ecstasies in which the imagination confounds internal images with external occurrences such ecstasies it is true are not common but, says Paulus, in Zacharias's case, many circumstances combined to produce so unusual a state of mind. The exciting causes were, firstly, the long-cherished desire to have a posterity, secondly, the exalted vocation of administering in the Holy of Holies, offering up with the incense the prayers of the people to the throne of Jehovah, which seemed to Zacharias to foretoken the acceptance of his own prayer, and thirdly, perhaps an exhortation from his wife as he left his house, similar to that of Rachel to Jacob, from Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. In this highly excited state of mind, as he prays in the dimly lighted sanctuary, he thinks of his most ardent wish, and expecting that now or never his prayer shall be heard, he is prepared to discern a sign of its acceptance in the slightest occurrence. As the glimmer of the lamps falls upon the ascending cloud of incense, and shapes it into varying forms, the priest imagines he perceives the figure of an angel. The apparition at first alarms him, but he soon regards it as an assurance from God that his prayer is heard. No sooner does a transient doubt cross his mind than the sensitively pious priest looks upon himself as sinful, believes himself reproved by the angel, and, here two explanations are possible, Either an apoplectic seizure actually deprives him of speech, which he receives as the just punishment of his incredulity, 
till the excessive joy he experiences at the circumcision of his son restores the power of utterance, so that the dumbness is retained as an external, physical, though not miraculous occurrence. Or the proceeding is psychologically understood, namely that Zacharias, in accordance with a Jewish superstition, for a time denied himself the use of the offending member. Reanimated in other respects by this extraordinary event, the priest returns home to his wife, and she becomes a second Sarah. With regard to this account of the angelic apparition given by Pallas, and the other explanations are either of essentially similar character or are so manifestly untenable as not to need refutation, it may be observed that the object so laboriously striven after is not attained. Paulus fails to free the narrative of the marvelous, for by his own admission the majority of men have no experience of this kind of vision here supposed. If such a state of ecstasy occur in particular cases, it must result either from a predisposition of the individual, of which we find no sign in Zacharias, and which his advanced age must have rendered highly improbable, or it must have been induced by some peculiar circumstances which totally fail in the present instance. A hope which has long been indulged is inadequate to the production of ecstatic vehemence, and the act of burning incense is insufficient to cause so extraordinary an excitement in a priest who has grown old in the service of the temple. Thus, Paulus has in fact substituted a miracle of chance for a miracle of God. Should it be said that to God nothing is impossible, or to chance nothing is impossible, both explanations are equally precarious and unscientific. Indeed, the dumbness of Zacharias, as explained from this point of view, is very unsatisfactory. For had it been, as according to one explanation, the result of apoplexy, admitting Paulus's reference to Leviticus chapter 21 verse 16 to be set aside by the contrary remark of Lightfoot, still we must join with Schleiermacher in wondering how Zacharias, notwithstanding this apoplectic seizure, returned home in other respects healthy and vigorous, and that in spite of partial paralysis his general strength was unimpaired and his long-cherished hope fulfilled. It must also be regarded as a strange coincidence that the father's tongue should have been loosed exactly at the time of the circumcision, for if the recovery of speech is to be considered as the effect of joy, surely the father must have been far more elated at the birth of the earnestly desired son than at the circumcision, for by that time he would have been accustomed to the possession of his child. The other explanation that Zacharias's silence was not from any physical impediment, but from a notion, to be psychologically explained, that he ought not to speak, is in direct contradiction to the words of Luke. What do all the passages, collected by Paulus, to show that Audunamai may signify not only a positive non passe, but likewise a mere non sustinere, prove against the clear meaning of the passage and its context? If perhaps the narrative phrase of verse 22, auc e denato lalesai autuis, might be forced to bear this sense, yet certainly in the supposed vision of Zacharias had the angel only forbidden him to speak, instead of depriving him of the power of speech, he would not have said, 
kai esse saiopon me dune menos lalesai, but isti saiopon med epikairisis lalesai. The words diemene kophos of verse 21 also most naturally mean actual dumbness. This view assumes, and indeed necessarily so, that the gospel history is a correct report of the account given by Zacharias himself. If then it be denied that the dumbness was actual, as Zacharias affirms that actual dumbness was announced to him by the angel, it must be admitted that, though perfectly able to speak, he believed himself to be dumb, which leads to the conclusion that he was mad, an imputation not to be laid upon the father of the Baptist without compulsory evidence in the text. Again, the natural explanation makes too light of the incredibly accurate fulfillment of a prediction originating, as it supposes, in an unnatural, overexcited state of mind. In no other province of inquiry would the realization of a prediction which owed its birth to a vision be found credible, even by the rationalist. If Dr. Paulus were to read that a somnambulist, in a state of ecstasy, had foretold the birth of a child, under circumstances in the highest degree improbable, and not only of a child, but of a boy, and had moreover, with accurate minuteness, predicted his future mode of life, character, and position in history, and that each particular had been exactly verified by the result, would he find such a coincidence credible? Most assuredly, to no human being, under any conditions whatsoever, would he concede the power thus to penetrate the most mysterious workings of nature. On the contrary, he would complain of the outrage on human free will, which is annihilated by the admission that a man's entire intellectual and moral development may be predetermined like the movements of a clock. And he would, on this very ground, complain of the inaccuracy of observation and untrustworthiness of the report which represented, as matters of fact, things in their very nature impossible. Why does he not follow the same rule with respect to the New Testament narrative? Why admit, in the one case, what he rejects in the other? Is biblical history to be judged by one set of laws, and profane history by another? An assumption which the rationalist is compelled to make, if he admits as credible in the Gospels, that which he rejects as unworthy of credit in every other history, which is, in fact, to fall back on the supernaturalistic point of view since the assumption that the natural laws which govern in every other province are not applicable to sacred history is the very essential of supernaturalism. No other rescue from this self-annihilation remains to the anti-supernatural mode of explanation than to question the verbal accuracy of the history. This is the simplest expedient, felt to be such by Paulus himself, who remarks that his efforts may be deemed superfluous to give a natural explanation of a narrative, which is nothing more than one of those stories invented either after the death or even during the lifetime of every distinguished man to embellish his early history. Paulus, however, after an impartial examination, is of opinion that the analogy in the present instance is not applicable. The principal ground for this opinion is the too short interval between the birth of the Baptist and the composition of the Gospel of Luke. We, on the contrary, in harmony with the observations in the introduction, would reverse the question and inquire of this interpreter how he would render it credible 
that the history of the birth of a man so famed as the Baptist should have been transmitted, in an age of great excitement, through a period of more than sixty years, in all its primitive accuracy of detail. Paulus's answer is ready, an answer approved by others. The passage inserted by Luke, chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 2, verse 39, was possibly a family record, which circulated among the relatives of the Baptist and of Jesus, and of which Zacharias was probably the author. Schmidt controverts this hypothesis with the remark that it is impossible that a narrative so disfigured, we should rather say so embellished, could have been a family record, and that, if it does not belong altogether to the class of legends, its historical basis, if such there be, is no longer to be distinguished. It is further maintained that the narrative presents certain features which no poet would have conceived, and of which prove it to be a direct impression of facts, for instance, the messianic expectations expressed by the different personages introduced by Luke, in chapters 1 and 2, correspond exactly with the situation and relation of each individual. But these distinctions are by no means so striking as Paulus represents. They are only the characteristics of a history which goes into details, making a transition from generalities to particulars, which is natural alike to the poet and to the popular legend. Besides, the peculiar Judaical phraseology in which the messianic expectations are expressed, and which it is contended confirm the opinion that this narrative was written, or received its fixed form, before the death of Jesus, continued to be used after that event from Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Moreover, we must agree with Schleiermacher when he says, least of all is it possible to regard these utterances as strictly historical, or to maintain that Zacharias, in the moment that he recovered his speech, employed it in a song of praise uninterrupted by the exultation and wonder of the company, sentiments which the narrator interrupts himself to indulge. It must, at all events, be admitted that the author has made additions of his own, and has enriched the history by the lyric effusions of his muse. Coinol supposes that Zacharias composed and wrote down the canticle subsequent to the occasion, but this strange surmise contradicts the text. There are some other features which, it is contended, belong not to the creations of the poet, such as the signs made to the father, the debate in the family, the position of the angel on the right hand of the altar. But this criticism is merely a proof that these interpreters have, or determined to have, no just conception of poetry or popular legend, for the genuine characteristic of poetry and mythos is natural and pictorial representation of details. End of section 18